So, um, just before we hit record, you said that today you were doing a zazenkai. Mm-hmm. What is that? Zazenkai is traditionally a one-day meditation intensive in the Rinzai and Soto Zen traditions. Mm-hmm. Typically, it will start quite early. It'll vary depending on location. Uh, my wife and I start pretty early in the day, and then we'll go throughout the day. And it basically consists of, of walking, mainly seated meditation called zazen, and uh, some chant, chanting and prostrations. But it keeps going like that, more or less. So you do a sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, and so forth. So why would anyone do that? Is, is that a reasonable question? <laughs> um, we'll get we'll get to that. But if you were to, okay. um, uh-huh. if you were, I guess to to add up, um, mm. how many hours a week you do something like this, mm-hmm. or how frequently you you meditate mm-hmm. or practice what you just described? What would you say? This is great. Hopefully, your friends like Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> uh, okay, so I sit between three to four hours a day, an ordinary day. It's about six times a week. And then um, it really depends on our Zazen Kai today, where so we can have this conversation, so I can have this conversation with you. We're start, stopping a bit early, but um, it might range from six to 10 hours um, mm-hmm. on every Sunday. I'm sorry, every Saturday. So every Saturday is a Zazen Kai. And then uh, once a month, we'll have a approximately four to six day session, which is more or less a stacking the Zazen Kai one after the other. And then that's something like seven, eight, nine hours a day of sitting, not, not including the other walking and uh, basically in Zen, everything can be turned into meditation, eating meditation, mm-hmm. uh, walking is meditation and so on. So I don't know if I did the math, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a high number for someone who's a lay person. Yeah. Say. Yeah. And uh, the setup really here is um, how did you get to a point where it seemed important enough to you to do that, to commit the majority of your time, it seems, to meditate? Um, a very incrementally. Depends on where we want to start. Um, Uh, well, the most poignant place to begin, uh, and you know the story already, is that my uh, eldest sister died in 2014. Uh, she died of a late stage uh, cancer. She was diagnosed in December 2013, um, and then she lived only 12 more weeks and died mm. in the spring of 2014. And it wasn't immediately the case that I started wondering about all these really basic things. Of course, you already know that, but I've been wondering about them in philosophical ways for for many years before that. Um, I know that people and other, other people around the world, um, but there was something really quite poignant and penetrating that seemed to have occurred around that time. So my wife and I began to explore 
uh, what Zen really nicely calls the great matter of birth and death, mm. great matter of life and death. Uh, where, you know, where did Jen go? Where, where did she come from? What are we, what are we doing here? Uh, what am I? What am I? Uh, and the question I often ask was, is this, is this it? Mm. Is this all there is to it? Is this, the, is this the show we're involved in? The show's over. And we, and we, we called a day. Well, I felt as though I didn't really know any of those answers. So that's really the reason I think people come, I hope people come to spiritual practice is that they start to realize that they can't seem to find the answers they're looking for. And a lot of people aren't asking the questions to begin with. So. So I don't want to mislead people. I'm actually a non-dualist. Zen Buddhism is the primary practice. There are other practices I'm involved in. But suffice to say, these Eastern paths are very powerful and that they can carry you all the way home mm. to what you truly are. And that's what I, you know, it didn't happen in a day. So this is 2014. I'm just beginning to explore as, as you might explore um, playing the piano or as you might explore uh, learning a sport it wasn't deeply flavorful but these paths seem to operate in the following manner the, the more uh, shraddha is the sanskrit term for faithful and earnest and enthusiastic you are the more that grows the more is disclosed the more it comes to seem as if there's really not that you're somehow directing the path, but the path is unfolding in a way that it's almost pulling you along with it. You, you can't really deviate from the path at a certain point. Mm. Right? You and I have discussed the fact that I said I had nowhere else to go, mm -hmm. nowhere else to turn. And that's absolutely true. Do you think there was a other than your your sister's death, do you think there was another inflection point where you realized you had nowhere else to go or the path itself had fully taken you? Um, <clears throat> there are all sorts of inflection points. It really depends on how we want to tell the story. So um, uh, in 2009, I, I finished a PhD and left academia. That was an earlier inflection point and that led me to wanting to lead a philosophical life. And then the Socratic philosophizing was um, what helped to birth, so to speak, this 2014 experience, because mm -hmm. had I not been open, very, very open to all these sorts of questions about the nature of good life. And there are the philosophical questions. What's a good life? How, do, how does one lead a good life? What is wisdom? What is the role of philosophical conversation? And so on. These, if you, if you travel in a Socratic way, for a long enough period of time, you might end up in something that starts to pitch you beyond philosophy. That's what I felt. For example, if you read Pierre Adot, you find that this is someone who's talking about philosophy as a way of life. He suggests that, as you know, uh, classical philosophy was considered with uh, spiritual exercises whose point and purpose was to change our perception of the world so we could live a wise life. He's one of the first that I'm aware of who began to foreground what he calls schesis or spiritual exercises or full, full exercises. Mm. 
But I feel as if you take that thread far enough, as it seems to have happened for me, you end up, as I was using the metaphor before, pitching into a spiritual practice. So that's, that's just one way of going back to go into philosophy and forward into spirituality. The other thing I've realized, much to my um, almost chagrin, is that philosophy, though wonderful, though amazing, just can't take you the whole way. <laughs> mm. So thousands upon thousands, you asked how many hours of the meditating, well, philosophizing with people for 10,000, 20,000 hours uh, over the last decade. Uh, when he used the Mount Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, Gladwell will be in, proud in of you. <laughs> <laughs> and it just seems as though it, it, the, 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 the discourse, reasoning discourse, only takes you so far. And I found that when I say much to my chagrin, what I mean is that it just starts to bump up uh, against its inherent limitations. Mm-hmm. It places you in a realm of silence. When, all, when the philosophical, philosophical conversation goes well, it moves you into silence. But that's exactly where meditation, true meditation, begins right. and ends. And so what is that silence? What is here? Uh, and, you, and I'm asking those questions aloud, of course, but those questions are answered non-linguistically, non-discursively. So that was another um, another realization. And I mean, quite quite frankly, what's what's difficult about this question is that there's a certain point at which it starts to feel as if everything is leading in one direction. That's why I'm one reason I'm struggling to pick out some inflection points is that it starts to feel as if there's a certain kind of centripetal force. Well, I had this incident with a neighbor, spiritual practice. Oh, I was talking to my mother. Oh, well, spiritual practice. Buddhists will say everyone is my teacher. Everything Mm -hmm. is my teacher. And it sounds kind of trite. It sounds pretty cute. But after a while, what? It is. It's true. Everything seems to get kind of um, pulled back into or never leaves really it's just, as my Zen teacher would say that practice becomes constant and complete it starts to feel as if you can never actually leave it you can't leave it I mean I'm, I'm going to bed at night I, I, I'm meditating but my wife is lying on me and meditating there I wake up to, to pee in the middle of the night I'm 42 years old and I have to pee and I'm just you know I'm meditating I go back to bed before I fall asleep, I'm meditating. I wake up in the morning, I'm meditating. It's, um, I'm walking, I'm meditating. It's... <clears throat> now that makes it sound as if I'm trying to do something. It's more like it keeps happening. Mm-hmm. So is it that at a certain point, uh, and maybe we, maybe we can't pinpoint it, but at a certain point it just picks up its own momentum and the sense of uh, doing it or sitting to meditate doesn't even make sense anymore. Yeah, exactly right. So um, consider the uh, tradition of karma yoga. Uh, The Bhagavad Gita describes three paths. Jnana yoga, the path of knowledge. Uh, Bhakti yoga, the path of devotion, love. And karma yoga, the path of selfless selfless doing or selfless action. Uh, What's said about karma yoga is two things. One is that you begin to act, supposing when we're on this path, 
it's not really quite the path I'm on, but it might help to illustrate something here. Um, you, you, you act and you give the results up to Krishna. You, you basically abandon the results or the fruits of your action. Mm -hmm. So you can say in Buddhist language, you act with non-attachment, but you really dig in to act with non-attachment. That's the first part. The second part, though, is more crucial. You come to realize if you're really on a karma yoga path that there is no doer here. So there is no doer behind the doing. So you, there is no doership. It's just doing. Right? It's just pure doing, as Buddhists would say. Right? It's just completely processual. There's no doer. There's no one to whom it's done. There's no, no recipient to the gift. And if you even go farther, that if you really want to say, say more, you can say there's no, there's no recipient. In a certain respect, there's no doing, and there is no doer. It's all just a seamless processual unfolding. Um, so the reason I brought that up is that that's how it starts to feel. I can use Taoist language if that helps. It's just that everything starts to flow along in accordance with the way of things, the Tao. And it stops, it stops feeling as if you're, you're resisting, you're trying to do something, you're trying to achieve something or other, which we call awakening or liberation. It's... Um, everything is just everything is just happening. Mm -hmm. It's not as though I think to myself, what a nice, what it would it be nice to sit and meditate today? Or would it be nice to? Same happens in philosophizing. It's not that I think, oh, it's so nice to, to philosophize today. I just find myself sitting in the cushion. <laughs> I find right. myself philosophizing. I find myself talking to my friend Daniel. Besides, so without 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 um, without a lot of vacillations and premeditations and. Um, Everything is sort of just carrying on. Yeah. So I think I get that um, in some sense, but there's also a paradox from one vantage point where you said you, you start to realize that everything is just happening on its own. And it almost sounds like you need to do something first to have that realization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So To, to me, that feels kind of paradoxical because there is some doership maybe initially, and then at some point it falls away. Is that, is that how you put it? Or there now never was any of, doership. Now we're getting into some non-dual teaching. Some mm -hmm. of the teaching that these teachings would say, uh, there is, I'll try to put it without any kind of uh, subject object language. There is the realization that there never was a doer in the first place. That's only so helpful as a teaching. However, um, I'm in a camp that basically says there needs to be some muscle applied for some time uh, until it is realized that there never needed to be any muscle in the first place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So consider the example of um, a Zen Sashin. Suppose it's your first meditation retreat. That's going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be painful. Uh, the, 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 body it depends on how long those sessions and these issues are very rigorous they're 10 12 hours of meditating uh, not including i mean seated meditation not including the other forms of meditation that i was pointing to uh, there are some that don't involve sleeping um, during the night and there's, there's night sits as well and free sits yaza if you've never been on a retreat before this is going to be brutal <laughs> 
and uh, you'll be tired and hungry and you'll be thinking and you'll be having all sorts of cravings for food. <laughs> so there's a lot of effort involved. Um, mm. And this is just one particular way of describing it. So maybe I can help us out by talking about Patanjali, who's uh, has something called the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. It's a very nice description here. He begins by talking about, um, in one of the later books, about um, dharana. And he says that this is a, basically one is going to apply a lot of efforts to get to one-pointedness. We could discuss what that means. But roughly speaking, you're going from a very distracted, dispersed, wandering mind to, so my Zen teacher would put it, I was just holding it to, to illustrate, right? Mm -hmm. You feel a bit of that, right? That's one pointedness. And then there's a holding. And then that that once one gets starts to master that, it's required a fair amount of effort of bringing it back to the breath or bringing it back to the count, whatever the meditation technique is. Um, then there is a possibility of entering into what he calls um, dhyana, which is a more effortless, uh, what Zen calls samadhi. It's a samadhi state in which there are very few thoughts. Uh, one's entered into a very energetic state where there's a certain kind of well-being uh, and, and, and joy. Mm. But once you, once you cross that threshold, I don't want to make it sound so linear because if your mother says something that, that, that really hurt you, on Tuesday, you might sit down and just find that it's a, it's a complete noisy disaster. Mm. Uh, but generally speaking, it starts to trend toward the sense of effortless uh, flowering, or effortless effervescence. And it becomes clear that everything, at that point, it's starting to become clear everything is just happening. Thoughts are arising and falling. Sensations are rising and falling. Um, even even the, the ego is rising and falling right, in the form of a particular subscara or ego tendency. All of this is just this very well nicely described by Buddhists. It's just coming and going, breathing and unbreathing. And then, then, it, then it can be said for the path that the path is no longer that which you're trotting on. The path is, so to speak, carrying you along with it. And that's always the case. It's just we don't realize that. Yeah, it's always the case. Mm -hmm. This is where you know, this is where our, our modern presupposition that there is uh, an ontologically distinct, autonomous agent in control of this life. That it's, upon further inspections, a pretty dubious presupposition. It has some utility. You know, it's it's if you want to operationalize it and say that there are certain things that I did, there are certain things for which I'm responsible. I think it makes a certain amount of social sense. Mm -hmm. But in the final analysis, once you peel back the layers, as people say today, it's pretty clear that it's not what's happening. It's a web of interconnected relationships. You know, and things are flowing as, as, as they flow. Now that might seem as if, it might seem as if to one who's committed to free will, uh, as if it's really quite scary, but what's happening there is someone's holding on to a separate position or a separate point of view that 
so the only, it's only scary and feels lonesome and despairing if there's a positing of a separate point of view out here and then everything is seemingly happening in the foreground mm. and I can't do anything about it. But if there's only the, the breathing of God's very being in and out, in and out, creation, the stasis and the dissolution, creation, the stasis of dissolution, then so also for Daniel and Andrew. So I'll, so it has always been. If this is how it's always been and how it is, then why is it so difficult to realize for most people? Well, there are lots of, that's like a, that's like a uh, frequently asked question. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> um, there are different ways of describing it. Uh, so that's just where the, the tradition called the core non-dual teaching, as I might call it, tends to disagree a little bit. They're slightly different shadings. Um, so here are a few answer answers. You can even an array of answers. <laughs> well, the Buddha, the, the Buddha says, um, you know, the cause of our slightly different question, but the cause of our suffering is selfish desire. It's one interpretation. It's a second noble truth. Why is it the case that we suffer? So, by the way, why do we suffer at all? Well, because there's a sense of separation. Hmm. Right? I take myself to be an ontologically distinct entity with uh, a life of my own, right? for which I'm responsible, over which I have a certain degree of control. And that's usually the starting point for the inquiry in a non-dual sense. And it's pretty clear you can verify that in experience. Anytime you don't feel separate from the rest, there is no suffering. Now, there can be no push or pull if there's just a situatedness of this particular psychophysical organism enmeshed in and within the WHOLE, the whole. Right? Mm. So we have to begin our, our analysis or inquire with separation so, uh, or presumptive or uh, ignorant sense of separation, really. So um, I like the Indian answer. Usually they, they, they will just appeal to ignorance. So that's a very, it's a very short answer. But the short answer is that there's an account of ignorance, the veil of Maya. So when the one all, when God or when the true self, let me back up. So suppose it's the case we begin with the true self or God. And there's only the true self or God. It's just the one reality and that one reality is universal consciousness. I guess your viewers would have to accept that for the moment as an operating right. premise. <clears throat> What's really quite mysterious is that this one reality, I'll call it God, um, just to keep it simple in terms of naming, um, it could be called Tao or Shunyata or whatever. Um, this uh, God, this one reality, has a natural tendency to vibrate. Who, who knows why? <laughs> so it's, it's important because why is there something rather than no thing at all? Mm -hmm. as philosophers have been inclined to ask why is there the many not just the one as platonists ask well somehow mysteriously so the one the one all vibrates and that natural vibratory tendency ends up exuding or bringing forth out of itself which is none other than itself various and sundry forms universes nation states 
reptiles, bodies of water, every, everything, right? every, every concrete thing and every idea as well. Everything is only that with this capital T. So now we come to humans. Uh, and so what seems to happen is that there's a, what, what um, Kashmir Shaivas call condensation or contraction. In order for God to condense or concretize God's self as Daniel or Andrew, there's a certain kind of forgetting that takes place or veiling such that, uh, it's going to sound weird to keep using third person, so I won't keep doing that. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, Andrew, looking through my eyes, am simply the focalization of God who now can know the world dualistically, now can reflect, now I can, now I can reflect on myself. I have the capacity for self-reflective, um, capacity for self-reflection, but all this comes at the cost so to speak, of having forgotten for a while that I am nothing other than God in a particular garb or form. So it's a little bit as if um, you know, God had to make a sacrifice, to put it rather poetically, right? Mm -hmm. In order to manifest God's self in the form of Andrew, God had to pretend that he'd forgotten or she'd forgotten, whichever pronoun you want to use here, God's self. And in consequence, God now believes that he's answered. I believe that I'm, this is what I believe that I am. And I feel that that's so. That's called ignorance. And there, mm -hmm. you know, this is just a very short account of ignorance. So realization is, or enlightenment or waking up, is just what Ramon Marshi would say, going back the way you came. Poetically, one, begin, one begins to investigate or in the various ways of doing it. These are meditation techniques. There are various ways, various ways of vest, investigating who or what I take myself from this point of view, from the point of view of being a separate subject, who or what I take myself to be. And I keep finding I'm an inquiry kind of guy. So I keep finding that the answers don't really stack up. So I take myself to be a common one. I take myself to be thought. It's very early. No, wait a minute. There's someone here contemplating thoughts and wait, thoughts come and go, but I haven't come and gone. Oh, oh, oh. it turns out that I'm not thought. Then we can keep going through the process. I won't go through it at length here unless we need to. But suffice to say, as one keeps going through the process, there's a kind of a stepping back or a sinking back or, um, or expansion, depending on the metaphor you want to use. And there can come a time at which... Uh, all the limitations, all the limitations brought about by a kind of ignorance drop, at least momentarily. If it drops momentarily, that's what, what Zen Buddhists call kensho. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, seeing, seeing everything that was just described very intellectually. So that's, that's an account to, to describe how this happens. Now, why do so few people realize their true nature? So there's a, that's a second question. I mean, it builds off the first, I hope. Oh, yep. That's clear. Yeah. Okay. I like Ramon Maharshi's answer. I think it's, it's very compassionate. Um, so I'm going to paraphrase a story of this satsang or this dialogue. Someone comes to Ramon Maharshi when he's still teaching Ramon Ashram until he dies in 1940 or so. Not sure if that's quite the right day, but thereabouts. 
and um, the person says, well, I heard your teaching. By the way, Ramana Maharshi's highest teaching was silence. You just sit in silence with him. Just a very, very direct teaching. It must have been magnificent. I would have, I would have thought. It's completely profound. Um, but he would also come out of silence and uh, he would try to meet people where they were. It's upadesa or, or spiritual instruction. So let's suppose this fellow comes and says, I heard what you said. And you said that I am Brahma, I'm universal consciousness, or I'm this one reality. And um, the man says, I basically, I heard what you said, and I just don't, I don't freaking get it. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which is what happens to most of us. You hear this stuff, and you're like, okay, that sounds pretty interesting. But if you hear it, and you're not even on this path, you just think it sounds kind of nutty, actually, mm-hmm. right? But if you start to be open, if you start to be open to it, read the Upanishads or some of these texts, oh, what the hell are you talking about? But there's, maybe you get a feeling there's something here, right? Um, I imagine that, that man is, I want, I, want to, I want to realize my true nature. I want, to, I want to know what I am in a capitalized sense. I'm here, I'm listening, I'm in silence with you. I don't, I don't understand. I, re- I really don't, I haven't realized. What, what am I missing? And Rama Harshi says, oh, well, um, basically you have vasanas or some scars. Mm. That's the account I think is very good. So due to the preponderance of some scars, you can't quite see the mirror because the mirror is covered with specks of dust and dirt and so on. Um, so some scars, I would define, this may not be consistent with these traditions. I have my own, my own view. I define some scars as basically being um, what essentially I think and feel I am. So if I essentially think that I am the knower, then this is going to color, by, by me here, I'm for an Andrew, this is going to color my ordinary experience. Um, I'm going to wake up and I have to know how to make the coffee. Just so and I go to meetings and I have to know to be the one who knows the right thing to say or um, what the right account to give is. Uh, so it, my, not just my thoughts and my feelings, but also my, my actions are colored just so long as I maintain my stance as the samskaric knower. And there are all sorts of samskaras. But how can I possibly realize this restful, open, spacious, infinite, eternal being, so long as I'm gripping onto being the knower, the caretaker, seer, that's the kind I think is quite persuasive. Just to maybe add some color to this, is this similar to when someone who's like, let's say been a corporate lawyer their entire life and they really identify with that job all of a sudden gets fired or something happens and they have a deep existential crisis because they don't know who they are. Is that um, analogous to the idea of samskara or is that more than analogous? Is that also kind of a samskaric relationship with the role of a lawyer? I would say it's, I don't know how technically we want to get here and and my, (laughs) my view, but that's a little bit downstream. So let's, um, so yes, there is identification. I am, I am a lawyer. Right? I Vedanta would say, I am this or I'm that. The, the problem starts with the this or the that. Not with the I am. 
So if we just hmm. allow your viewer just for a moment to say, if you just sit at I am, don't add anything, I am. There's just a restfulness and peacefulness. And what in Sanskrit is called ananda. There's just a little hint of, of peace and calm. There's awareness. It's undeniably so. There's awareness, but not awareness of objects. And there is existence or beingness. This is called sitcha ananda. Those are the, the clues about the nature of reality. I think they're really good clues. Awareness or consciousness, existence, and uh, a taste of uh, bliss, a non, non-circumstantial, non-contingent, uh, non-desirous happiness. So, uh, so the trouble, so to speak, begins when the person in question we'll call John uh, condenses himself down into the identification with the lawyer. Uh, so that is an identification, and it's going to bring about suffering, mm-hmm. as is evident here. Right? He's going to suffer whenever it's the case that he gets what he wants. He's going to suffer whenever it's the case he doesn't get what he wants. He's going to suffer whenever there are limit cases where he's asked to do things that seem to be beneath him because he's a lawyer. It's going to be there are going to be cases where he loses a job and he doesn't and he can't get as good of a job as he had before. There are going to be cases in which, uh, due to status games, he's going to not be as high in the status hierarchy as he'd like to be relative to being a lawyer and having a certain career. Those are all forms of suffering brought about by I am a lawyer. But as some scars, a little higher than that. Um, and it's probably operating in the case of being a lawyer. So I would say, it's, to, to use a shorthand, it's a bit like a personality type mm-hmm. or an Enneagram type. So you could theoretically, this person could lose a job with a lawyer. And if he had never quite identified with being lawyer, he would be just fine, but it wouldn't actually yet touch the samskara. Maybe right. the samskara is I'm a caretaker. Um, and he's able to very nimbly in his ordinary relative conventional life shift to taking care of his mother because he identifies with being a caretaker. Now, when you get to that level of analysis and you start to disrupt Here's some scar identifications. Then you can have a real existential crisis. Mm. You can have one at the at the level you were suggesting for sure. But the reason that it's it's devastating that level is that <clears throat> uh, there is yet to be. Well, let me try to put it differently. It can be a crisis, but the real crisis is something like um, I keep asking a question. I don't know who I am. And I can't seem to attach to a samskar. I don't know where they are right now. Mm. The greater crisis is, is, is a great one. is to realize that you are none of these samskars. You are, you are no such ego identification at the highest possible, most ethereal level. Right? These are constituents of personality that when you're deep in meditation, you can start to see them coming and going. They kind of come in and out. They, 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 they wax and wane but you're seeing them so they can't be you yeah i i feel like um the analogy of of possession right like being possessed by a demon or like a spirit that isn't you mm-hmm. helps me understand this and mm-hmm. in my own life i can draw a thread to my childhood 
and then to the samskaric personality patterns that I have today. So certain mm-hmm. things that maybe I was rewarded for when I was a kid mm-hmm. or punished for, and then that creates certain uh, personality patterns that are stable and I can confuse them for me. And then in mm-hmm. states of meditation, I start to see them as something separate from me. Mm-hmm. Um, but they often, uh, they often seem to be things that relate to my childhood or things that I learned when I was very, very young. Is that the case um, in general for some scars? Are they things that develop um, during critical developmental periods when, when you're growing up? Yeah, good question. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, it depends on how far one wants to go with this. I mean, uh, one thing to say is that uh, your question is lovely, but it's also null and void. Does it matter? Is is, is, is a proper reply? Right. They're right. here. They're here, and you've identified yourself with this or that or the other. So long as that occurs, there's going to be some form of disease or disturbance. Um, my, I think my intention. Probably, you're probably, yeah, you're probably right to say. That I can I can answer a little bit less cheekily. You're, you're probably right that a number of them do develop at critical moments in psychosocial development. I wouldn't disagree with that. I don't know because I'm not a developmental psychologist, quite frankly. Um, but the other part that's left out as a count is, who knows, if rebirth is true, it might be from prior lives too, if right. we're willing to grant that presupposition for the moment. So um, as, as a matter of mark, I would say, um, I'll give you an example of what I think is a really uh, quite a, a helpful concept and that comes from Hume and it's the inner child. Uh, I think it's a great concept. Uh, I think it's great because I've seen it in my own, I've, I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen a particular phenomenon and the best label I have for it is the inner child. So the inner child, I basically would say, and I haven't read Hume on this, this is my own um, meditative and um, philosophical study mm-hmm. of myself, of myself, of my relative self. Uh, the inner child is just a, a reservoir of hurt. All mm. it basically says is I'm hurting. It's very, that's the way I articulate it. And then there are various ways of art, uh, spinning that out. You can have a biomotive framework. You, there are all sorts of frameworks at that point, but I think chief among all is uh, I'm hurting. And then we're going to see a rising of emotions and patterns of thought, basically recursive patterns of thought and emotion. So, so for me, I, I see uh, anger, and that's a common one I got from my childhood. And I also see pride, uh, a lot of prideful thoughts. I didn't know that they're prideful thoughts, but lo and behold, they seem to suggest that I'm the one who knows the right sorts of things to say, and the other one doesn't quite know and is being instructed accordingly. Right. <laughs> you know, or you know, it's it's vengefulness, but it has has the intellectual veneer of presumptive validity um, mm. so i don't i don't know where the samskaras come from i think your your hypothesis is as good as any but my simple fairly non-intellectual point is that they're here and right. i should add something to, so that so that people don't misunderstand what i'm saying they do have some utility uh, we've already talked about the and I'm, I'm willing at the conventional level to accept that there's an agent if we want to say that we're agents that's fine it's so long as we don't reify or hypostasize and dig in our, dig in our heels, I'm perfectly content with, with, with saying that. It's just not ultimately true, so far as I can tell. Uh, likewise, we need to have personalities. <laughs> sometimes people, sometimes people um, think that enlightenment 
means that there's a, a complete erasure of personalities. Of course not. They're helping to operationalize the body mind. Um, you know, how do we get to, how does, how does God come to laugh, right? There needs to be form, right? A mm-hmm. basic form or template or archetype in order for there to be laughter or um, wryness or amusement. Now, hopefully the unwholesome aspects of personalities fall away with deeper and deeper realizations. But I just want to make that clear so that people don't misunderstand me and think that some scars are bad or even embodiment is bad. It's not. These are just forms of forgetfulness or ignorance. And once we start to examine in a Socratic way or in the way that Buddha, the Buddha taught, then we're not chucking them by the wayside. We're just disentangling. We're disentangling ourselves from some pretty profound misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. They, they're going to still, the wholesome aspects of experience are still going to be there. They're just going to be rearranged owing to the depth of our introspective study. This makes me wonder, um, from a non-dual perspective, mm-hmm. how how does one think about morality? Like, how do you distinguish between a wholesome versus unwholesome samskara? Um, let's set aside. Um, let's set aside the wholesome and unwholesome subscribe. I mean, <clears throat> it's easier if you just accept that the, the one, one part of the investigation and in these Eastern practices, what's called direct experience. It's hard to really define it philosophically because mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's, a it's a basic term. Um, I guess you would say that it's whatever is arising here and now. Um, and if one is able to um, be more sensitive and, and mindful and reflective, and all those words are kind of, and those um, processes get sharpened the more you meditate, then it becomes, it's just intuitively the case that you can discern between wholesome and unwholesome. Um, if you have a thought, you can, you can start to philosophize and say, well, it has to do with the intention. You can start to get an ethical theory worked up here. But roughly speaking, in the experience, it becomes clear that, no, this, is, this looks like um, a wholesome way of relating to someone, but this is really just vengefulness. I don't know how one knows that because one isn't standing back from it reflexively. It's just immediately clear. The discernment process, in, in my experience, just starts to sift itself out into wholesome and unwholesome. It doesn't require some um, metacognitive uh, reconsideration and further working up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, more intuitive. There's like a spontaneous discernment. Yeah, that's right. I suppose it's a little bit like asking, if I can use an analogy with athletes, it's a bit like asking the athlete, how did you know to, you know, turn left right there rather mm-hmm. than right when you're on the field. Well, maybe we can give an Aristotelian answer according to which I've been doing this sort of thing time and time again in all sorts of situations. I've developed certain kind of excellencies or uh, virtues of character. But in that situation, I was able to just to see that there was an opening and I, and I didn't say I need to go left. There was just the going of left. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a little bit like that when it comes to discerning 
some of the unwholesome from unwholesome uh, from wholesome aspects. But I do want to add one thing because I'm first and foremost an ethicist. So um, I think ethics or morality at least can start with. Um, it depends on where one wants to start, but one of the things I suppose I would say is something I like from um, Alan Wallace's book, The Four Measurables, a book I'm currently reading. And he says quite clearly that at least what we should be with ethics is with a set of don'ts. Um, this is not amber, it's not rule-based. It's not amber in terms of an integral theory. Don't do this, do that. It, but it, it is a sense of, we need to avoid the worst forms of misconduct that we're that we can agree, uh, killing and stealing and things like that, we can agree upon and gossiping. We can start, now we can start to say, well, gossiping, that's a bad thing. I don't know how much philosophical contemplation is necessary to conclude that gossiping is a bad thing. And you start to roll out some precepts and you memorize the precepts, the 10 ethical precepts in Buddhism, and you literally learn them by heart to a point which they're internalized and they begin to inflect the actual in-situation practice. Uh, so one of the reasons I accepted your invitation to talk today is um, is the eighth or ninth precept. I resolve not to withhold spiritual and material aid, but give them further where needed. Hmm. Well, I'm talking to a friend. I hope this is a benefit to other people. This seems like a good example of actually applying the precept of um, providing some modicum of spiritual aid to others. Did I did I did I uh, cogitate about all those things? I didn't really deliberate. Deliberation is a separate Aristotelian category, but those are in hard cases that we still need philosophical deliberation. The easy cases, low-hanging fruit, are just the ones in which we begin to spontaneously and intuitively understand what the right thing to do is. So I don't know if I answer your question, but non, non-dual ethics, I'm sorry, non-dual teaching really can't do without ethical practice. Mm-hmm. That's just... I only gave you kind of a low-hanging fruit answer, but there are lots of other reasons why it, it not only does not only can it not do without it, it, but it also fundamentally needs and requires ethical practice. So the the thing that comes to mind now is, um, based on what you said, how do we account for uh, gurus and awakened spiritual teachers who seem to behave in unethical ways? Mm-hmm. Well, there are lots of ways of accounting for those figures. Um, I'm just uh, thinking because uh, the first answer is the one we're both, I think we're both familiar with, that would be spiritual bypass. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, a consensus answer that's been given. Um, and spiritual bypass, your listeners might not know, refers to um, having some psychological baggage, I would call it some scars, frankly, but you can call it some scars, shadows. There, there's all sorts of stuff in this category. I don't know if there've been, I still haven't seen people who have really sorted this out. So I'm hoping at some point to provide a more cohesive account of these subcategories of stuff, baggage and such. But in any case, the psychological baggage is presumably that which has been bypassed. So you think, think about a highway or motorway bypass and you've come to realization. Um, meanwhile, the body mind, this instrument, has not been refunctioned properly. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually functioning in accordance with the realization. And thus, it's left with basically with selfishness or self centeredness. As a consequence, um, its predilections can still be active. 
so sexual appetite. We, we still find that today. I think Kuladasa or Kudalasa is one recent figure who had uh, pretty strong sexual um, predilections, I think. Um, and he was recently um, asked, asked to leave his, uh, his, I don't know enough much about the situation, but I can right. give you, I can give you other examples prior to that, but it's, I'm, I'm just suggesting that even though this is, it seems as though in the West, we're doing a little bit better at this than we were doing uh, 40, 50 years ago, it's, it's still happening. So that's, that's one account. Um, uh, Just to respond to that account, um, that makes me think that processing samskaras is not necessary for awakening and realization. Is that what you're saying? You can still have samskaras and be awakened or are these individuals not awakened? Okay. Uh, well, that gets us into, uh, I'm, I'm in the, that gets us into, these are all wonderful questions. I just want you to know they're all really big ones, mm -hmm. um, which is great. Um, and so I, the reason I'm pausing is I want to give a, a reasonably condensed answer. So I'm in the school of Zen Buddhism that says that there's what's called sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. This is, a, I think, a pretty reasonable uh, view to take. And uh, it basically states that <clears throat> we should distinguish between, I suppose, sudden awakening and great enlightenment. Sudden awakening is just a glimpse of our true nature. This is why Zen calls it Kensho. It's a, moment, it's a momentary dropping of the body-mind. It's a momentary dropping, therefore, of uh, minding and of its spatio-temporal nexus. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, there's a realization or uh, seeing into the nature, seeing the nature of things. I don't know if you've read this, but if you hear first-person um, narratives, though, there is a coming back, so to speak, right? Coming back. Think about psychedelics. Some people report on psychedelics that they've come into this non-dual state. Perfectly fine. But what Ramdas found, and this is the reason why in the 1970s he was starting to become skeptical of psychedelics himself, is that he, he always come down, as he says, mm -hmm. in his famous book, Be Here Now. And it was despairing for him, but in any event, right? So he's going into these non-dual states. There's nobody here. There's just pure awareness and returning to body-mind or whatever we should call it. Um, so the first, the, the, first, the first way of understanding what might be going awry with ethical scandals is that if you don't have a good enough tradition with good enough teachers and a good enough... Um, confirmation process you can think that that's it wow okay realize it all this is one reason why i i think we should be very careful when it comes to youtube today hmm. that sounds like that sounds really old fuddy duddy i'm sorry <laughs> no YouTube. i like i like this, the, the, uh, the youtube the youtube the youtube <laughs> i think we should oh, be very careful with the youtube I, I just mean that there are a number of people who are coming out and are proclaiming to be spiritual teachers of various various stripes and i'm sure some of them are legitimate but that requires actually ratiocination, rational processes to discern. That is a rational process to start to discern where is this person? And mm. one of the ways you begin is, is, is actually through philosophizing. So this is, this is a, some philosophical concepts we have at hand. One, that person may have had a sudden awakening, but it's not full or great awakening. Well, that's happened. A number of people have experienced momentary cessations of, of the body-mind, right? My wife and I have experienced that. 
but I don't, <laughs> it's not on that account alone, right? That it follows that uh, uh, it's all over, so to speak. Right, right, right. So what Zen suggests is that, no, these are great experience. These are important, Kensho. But you have a teacher there to confirm that this is, first of all, it's legit, not makyo, which is illusion of various kinds. So that's what helps. If you have a teacher and that teacher is advanced, then you're getting some outside help. Yes, that's right. This is, you, you're on to it. But that one will go on to say, teacher. Now, now you really need to practice. Now it really starts, mm. as some teachers will say. Because now there'll need to be perhaps more kenshos, right? More of these tastes or glimpses, as Francis Cecile calls them. And, and you'll need to start to have the body-mind um, become this instrument that is a complete, empty, clear vessel for the actions of Buddha nature, as some Buddhists call it, or God, as I was calling it earlier. So hopefully this is clear. That's, that's sudden, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So we should see that the gradual cultivation is going to be lifelong, mm -hmm. this lifelong. I think that's, even if it's not correct, I think it's a, a really nice uh, fail-safe device. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there are very few Ramana Maharshis who seem to have been in the camp of sudden awakening, sudden cultivation. I think that's such a rare case. He awakens at the age of 16. The documentary seemed to suggest that he was pretty much done, so to speak, at that point. He was complete, beautiful, divine light shining forth in this particular form. But I'm skeptical that we should take that as our standard. It's better to think of Madhya Maharshi as this beautiful, wonderful uh, example of what's possible, but without treating that as paradigmatic. Mm -hmm. That's not paradigmatic at all. It's paradigmatic are these little glimmers, right? So hopefully it's clear that the sudden awakening gradual cultivation allows there to be a lot of room. So if this is sudden awakening of my left finger and this is full realization of my right finger, there's actually a lot of room for shit to hit the fan, mm -hmm. right? It's accounted for because the gradual cultivation itself is going to be better or worse, right? Um, so that's, that's a, Hopefully that helps as well. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. So it, it kind of organizes some of the other stuff we were talking about because um, the way I'm at least uh, interpreting this is that the gradual cultivation period is, is, that, is the period where you have the chance to process the samskaras. Mm -hmm. And it's also the period where it starts off effortful but then perhaps at some point in the gradual cultivation process, it seems like it's just happening on its own and you start to realize that it's been happening on its own. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's all true. Yeah. Um, this is, for this reason, um, when it comes to the practical matter of anyone who's interested in um, sitting with a spiritual teacher one has to be actually quite discerning it it's said that only a fully enlightened being could recognize a fully enlightened being hmm. that is what it was said um, but there is a question of more or less which is very important right and you can start to ask yourself so i'm just you know i don't know if this is helpful but there are sort of practical questions here what is it like to be in the presence of this one 
And if it's not, it's not simply ethereal, but if there's not a kind of uplift, uh, a well-being, then there's a red flag. Mm -hmm. There should be some sense of there being genuine upswell, but without going into um, ecstatic states. This is not Burning Man, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's a bad that's a bad litmus test to apply. You should also be able to see whether or not, uh, in a philosophical terms, the there is some modicum of wisdom. So philosophically speaking, to find wisdom is right conduct flowing directly from right understanding. So if this one really has the understanding full of, more or less, then we should see that manifesting the conduct. What is it like for her to eat? How does she uh, walk? How does she, there's a, there's a story, uh, there was a story told uh, about a, a, a very advanced Zen Buddhist practitioner. And the story goes, uh, so people are asking, well, you see, you seem to be pretty far along. Why do you keep remaining with your, your Zen or Chan master? And his reply is, I should like to see how he ties his shoes. Hmm. So <laughs> in other words, right, I want to see his entire conduct of life and I want to know how he does it all. And I want to, I'm not, I don't think he's trying to poke holes in how realize this one, but he's obviously trying to see how well integrated does one need to be? How fully integrated does one need to be? With this understanding, I have a question about uh, gradual cultivation. Okay. Um, in the past, we've talked about different types of meditation, mm -hmm. and I think uh, a model that you've used is there. There are four different practices that ultimately amount to the same thing, but it's helpful to think of them as uh, discrete. Yeah. Um, can you go through them? Describe yeah. what they are. Let me, let me preface it by saying that I'm still beginning my, uh, so I'll give you a little background. Um, I have a bit of a research project, given myself in the research project. One that I think Timothy Conway and others have begun before me is to ask, um, if I look at Kashmir Shaivism, Rivaita Data, Zen Buddhism, John Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, so forth, if I look at their texts and what they're teaching, can I find independent lines of convergence on a central teaching? Independent lines of convergence. It's just not the case that Zen Buddhists would have had any familiarity with Christian mysticism, for example. Hmm. But can we start to see patterns and, and can, we, can we start to kind of hammer out what the, the, the essential teaching seems to be? Um, so to me, it's a second axial age project. The first axial age gives rise to a number of these teachings um, and to philosophy and to Taoism and to Buddhism, Jainism and to Jewish prophets. It gives rise to um, soteriological project. That is the project of, of, of seeking salvation mm -hmm. right, in some form or another. Second axial age, I think, is is asking other questions. How do we find lines of convergence? Is it also possible for there to be collective awakening? Mm. Some more ecologically minded Buddhists are asking. So that's in the background. Um, so um, uh, so as, as it pertains to the four meditations, one more <laughs> preparatory remark. These are just ones that I've come to so far as being, I think, helpful. Might have been the way I, I 
uh, these are not the only ones. I didn't include any that had to do with visualization. Right. I'm not very good at visualizing <laughs> myself. <laughs> so, you know, imagine the Garuda and the, the beautiful, beautiful, for, you know, beautiful light on the, on the lotus blossom coming into your heart state. Uh, it doesn't really, <laughs> my wife could probably do it, but uh, my, my, my visual imagination is very impoverished. So that wasn't included on the list. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'll add that uh, I, I found this very helpful to me personally, just okay. Okay. because I, I started to notice once you kind of gave this taxonomy, I started to notice my, uh, that, that I was doing these different things and I was just calling them meditation and putting them in one bucket, yeah. but being able yes. to distinguish them was very helpful. Yeah. So, so, yeah. They have slightly different uh, flavors and orientations. Mm -hmm. so, um, we've already spoken about one, which is some scars. Ken Wilber calls that cleaning up. Uh, so the idea there is, for for me in a very involved way to start to identify and to clear quiet some scars to polish the mirror just time set in these quarters so that's one their whole you know whole range of meditations that could fall under that header that's also a really nice one to begin with some people with who are more secular minded because they can say to themselves i'm hurting mm -hmm. i'm suffering Hopefully I can get to that point. They can say, I'm hurting, I'm suffering. This is the first noble truth in Buddhism. It takes a little while to realize though, that, oh, I'm suffering. It's not just the case people in Afghanistan and Syria are suffering. They are suffering and pretty profoundly, but, oh, wow, I'm suffering too. So this is a little, you know, one has to transcend the green meme for a certain form of social justice consciousness to get around to the possibility that I, I too am suffering, right? So, it's a, it's a kind of an, it, those are nice the samskaric investigations really help us to, i think very clearly to identify this the, the relative sources of our suffering mm -hmm. that's the way i would put it um next category there are all sorts of meditations that have to do with one-pointedness uh, which you've already alluded to a one-pointed concentration um, and i'm imagining right now there's a moment that maybe your, your friends or viewers um, aren't familiar with those terms. Maybe I'm, I'm just going to assume that they're not that familiar with sure, yeah. the many different types of meditation. So you have to begin with what it's like to go throughout the day and you start to realize that there's a wanderingness, associative wanderingness about the mind. It's arising in the form of this wandering it goes from a, a, a perception to a thought, and the thought gets carried away with a story. I'm sure you've heard this before. It's just, it's, there's a desultory, dispersive route. Yeah, you have a... Well, I, I'm just thinking about how this pops up for me where um, it's, it's analogous to when you realize you've spent an hour on YouTube and you're watching something that you didn't even know you cared about. Um, and then if you look back, it's because somebody sent you a link that seemed relevant to maybe the project that you were working on that you've since abandoned. And I, I find a lot of people relate to that experience because the internet allows for that tangent, tangential, like discursive, mm -hmm. um, unconscious rabbit holing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I notice my thoughts are like that too, where sometimes mm -hmm. I'll catch myself thinking something. I'm like, how did I end up here? And then you realize that you've just been taken for a ride for the last, you know, two minutes um, that, that you weren't even aware that you were on. My wife nicely calls that taking the bait. The thought arises and that's, mm. oh, this is so 
this is so delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and you take it and then you're right. And then it's a little bit like some kind of movie in which you, you end up in a cornfield and you have no idea how you got into the cornfield. You were in Toronto. Right. How, how did you get to Iowa <laughs> across the border <laughs> in the United States? Um, so in any case, uh, hopefully it gives us some flavor of the wanderingness, dispersive, unenergeticness. It's also very low energy, um, or it's kind of a hiccup of energy. It's very interesting too. So the, the one point of meditations, maybe I'll give an example in a moment, basically involves allowing, using an object, some kind of object or another, such as the breath or count, to allow the mind to concentratedly rest on whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's as if it's unstable. I'm, 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 I don't want to mislead here. The mind itself is not an entity. It's a, it's a rising phenomenon. But in English language, it's hard not to hypostasize it, to treat it as if it were some kind of static entity in which it's happening or to give it a kind of agency. Um, so that should be borne in mind as I speak. So the, the, the mind starts to rest its attention on the object for some time. And then there's a, usually a, 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 a flavor of contentment, uh, calmness. It will coincide with the breath being more regular and slower. Like it is in good in good sleep, and the body itself will feel the physical body, gross physical body will feel relaxed. So we, all those come together, quieting in the mind, uh, the, the prana, energetic body, the breath, the regular, and the physical body is relaxed, no longer tense. Uh, so one example of one simple example of uh, one pointed meditation would be. Uh, shamatha from Tibet Buddhism. It's very close to Anapana in a certain form of Buddhism. Um, it's, it's, it's very simple. Uh, let's suppose you just take the object and the object here, it'd be the physical sensations in the nostrils. Specifically, you would, you would select, I, this is the way I teach it, you would select, let's say, your right nostril if there's more sensate activity, especially early on. Right? So you, so you don't just focus on both nostrils because it can feel as if there's a flickering. We'd focus, let's say, on the right nostril. And then and specifically the opening of the nostril. Now you have a point for the attention, for the attention to uh, place itself on. Mm -hmm. And now there's gonna be one, there's gonna be wandering thoughts. But the more you you come to it's a very interesting process. At first, it seems like you have to tussle with thoughts. It's as if you're really getting yanked into thoughts or emotions, whatever. But if you actually diligently stick with it long enough, it there's a gestalt shift according to which this is so much nicer mm. and sweeter and clearer and brighter than the realm of thought or than emotionality, that it starts to have its a natural attractive quality. It's very, very neat. Um, so that's one point of meditation. Um, some traditions suggest that this is a preferatory exercise for some other kinds of meditation. It seems to be true in Tibetan Buddhism, so far as I can tell. Or Anapana in um, the Goenka tradition of Vipassana starts with 
getting more and more one point to the nostrils. So you can begin to investigate physical sensation, physical sensations through what's called a body scan. Mm -hmm. um, you would just track physical sensations across the face. I've done this uh, at a 10 day retreat, They're pretty commonplace in Canada, the United States. Um, so you, that's, so the first part, one poisonness is making possible a certain kind of investigation. So the third category I pointed out is the one uh, is quite attractive for people today. Um, you, some circles you hear a great deal about it. It's called direct path or direct pointing. I don't know about Dogen or Mahabudra yet, but I hope to learn more in time. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to table those. I'm only familiar with self-inquire by Ramah Maharshi and with Koan and Hua Tao and Zen and Chan respectively. The uh, essential idea, we can talk about it intellectually here. It's not quite the same thing as, as experiencing it. The essential idea is that there is typically a question that's utilized to, uh, so to speak, crack open the finite limited mind and to reveal right here, right now, our original face. So, so I put that in Zen language. Uh, so I put it in Ramah Maharshi language. If you ask, so Ramah Maharshi in, in a classical way, he's, he's only in his 20s at this point, and he provides us with this amazing text called Who Am I? Very short text. It's really available on the internet. And someone asks, the person asks him, how do you do it? And he says, okay, well, whenever a thought arises, you ask, to whom does the thought arise? And then you can, so you're, you're using discourse for a moment. You're using thought. And the answer is to me. And then he says, ask, who am I? And there are other versions called whence am I, but stick with the original one, who am I? And all he says there is, you know, we'd get a little bit of the theory, but all the, the, the question itself is meant to get beyond discursive mind or prior to discursive mind and to allow one to begin to dwell in what he calls the, the I thought. We, we already experimented with I am for a moment. So I would say they're comparable, this I am state. Mm -hmm. right? Before the arising of any I am this or I am that. And the, the, usually the direct pointing is very interesting because it really brings us into theology very quickly. Um, all, all the... All, 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 all the churches I'm familiar with basically state that only, if I may use a Christian term here, divine grace, only divine grace can finally bring us home. So all we can do is rest, and I am really rest, really make that our semi-permanent domicile, as it were. That's what meditation is doing. It's bringing us back to the penultimate place and then to put it somewhat agentially, God brings us the rest of the way home. Mm. God brings us back to God's self, or God realizes God's self, whatever else. That's direct pointing. Um, a great example would be uh, Francis Cecile, who's a contemporary Advaita Vedanta teacher who teaches a direct path. And his student is named uh, Rupert Spira. Rupert Spira has become very popular, and he also teaches direct path through his various kinds of yoga meditations and through his satsangs. Um, so those are very contemporary examples. And the last, so the, the last type. Let before. me offer a personal reflection on the yeah. direct pointing. For me, the way this 
comes up in my daily life is I might have a, a physical sensation like, um, for instance, this table feels kind of cold to my right hand. And then the question will, will sometimes arise, who is the one that's experiencing the cold table? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden the physical sensation becomes quite salient to me. And then I think, well, Daniel's the one who's experiencing this. And then immediately what comes after that is where is this idea of Daniel emerging? Like what are the constituents of, of Daniel at an experiential level? Yeah. And that starts to bring up other stuff. So then I'll start to notice thoughts that make me think of me as Daniel. Um, and then often more physical sensations until there's like a, a fixation. So for me, hmm. that whole experience going from the sensation of my hand against the table. Wait, until there's a fixation? What do you mean by that? Like a um, bait or a, a place where I get stuck. I, uh, oh, okay. the inquiry gets stuck at a physical sensation typically. And I think I've shared this before where oftentimes it's, it's my, my back. Like yeah. there's, there's like a, there's like a plane of awareness that like stops at, at just like my back. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's where Danielness is kind of coming from, or it just it feels very fixed compared to all the other stuff that i'm able to see is just kind of arising that thing doesn't feel as as uh, i guess um up in the air uh and that whole experience has the quality of of almost like stepping back like it, it feels like i'm getting behind something mm-hmm. um yeah. or yeah it, it's a physical sensation of of falling back almost and then usually for me, there's, there's a point where it, it kind of stops or my mind, uh, I get bored of it or something and my mind trails off again. Okay. Uh, that's, that's a very, that's, that's a very good um, anecdote or description of how, partly how it looks. Um, one of the reasons this is attractive to people with uh, strong analytical backgrounds, like you and me, is that it actually allows you to use inquiry Mm-hmm. philosophical inquiry but to start to deepen it and change its direction of sorts it's very that's why i find it so attractive to me well, i've been doing this for about a decade or so and how great that ramaharshi uh is basically helped to create a, a genre that borrows from or draws from what we're accustomed to but then takes up a notch or two. So that's, I think that's why probably people who are friends of yours might find this to be really quite, uh, quite engaging, quite mysterious, quite fascinating. Um, that's just about the appeal. Um, right. So when it pertains, so if we actually go into self-inquire for a moment and then we'll come to the fourth category of uh, opening mm-hmm. the heart. Uh, self-inquire um, is also humbling. What you described is quite humbling. So uh, if you ask yourself, who am I? Uh, in the Tamil language, uh, what they say, uh, according to uh, a disciple of Ramaharshi named Sri Sadhu Om, what they say is that, what he says is that everything starts to come, become second and third person. Second person, uh, and learn this from the translator of this particular text, because I don't, I don't speak Tamil, but obviously. <laughs> the, sec- the, the second person, refers to any object of sense data, any 
right? So it's, it's merely out in front, as it were, right? So think about your physical senses. They feel, if you start to get into this, they start to feel out in front, right? So if you wiggle your fingers or so and you feel physical sensations, notice how that feels out in front of you, mm-hmm. over this you is. The third person, the third person refers to an object of thought, right? So they would say that, well, Saito Om says that God is an object of thought. That's, so to speak, also out in front or above. Right? So what's happened, what you're describing is very interesting, but it's, it's, it's revealing, humbly so, the errant or wrong answers. So the physical sensation, Okay, well, who is it that's experiencing this? Now you start, oh, we can do it right now. Okay, so you feel something, you have a physical sensation. You ask, well, who is it or what is it that is experiencing this right now? Now, there should be a kind of pause. In other words, don't fill it in with don't know and don't know, but it's the equivalent, the, the experiential equivalent of don't know. Anytime there is a no, it's going to be a wrong answer. There'll be another physical sensation. Oh, it's that feeling in my back. Notice that there's the attention tries to go toward an object, mm-hmm. that feeling in my shoulder, that pain in my stomach, that thought about the thought about a personality. See how it's attention is, is starts to move, but so let's ask the question again. So if I'm neither a physical sensation nor thought nor an emotion, then who or what am I? And if the rational mind comes again and tries to supply an answer, quite frankly, it will always be the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just ask the question again. And we keep asking it until there is a kind of hum- humble, open resting. And the humble, open resting is a resting in awareness. Awareness is non-objective. Attention is objective. Attention is always attending to objects. So really, who am I is like asking the question, what is this awareness? It's non-objective awareness. Anyway, what is this that doesn't go anywhere? doesn't come from anywhere. doesn't seem to have any ordinary properties. doesn't seem to have any delineations. seems to be without limit. At least none is ascertainable. It's neither going this way nor going that way. It's not nothing in the ordinary sense, but it's really is no thing. Who am I? What am I? What is, what is this? That's a hotel version. What is this? And so the, 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 the Ramaharshi's version of, of this direct path is just to get you to as you would say, rest in this or to abide as this. The self-inquiry is also called self-abidance. And you should be able to experience it weirdly. <laughs> Let me try that sentence again. 
This should be clear right now. Now, anytime you try to, as my Zen teacher would say, anytime you try to turn this into something, you there's been a misstep, an out in front of this. Mm. Well, so open, right? So that's a pretty pretty simple demonstration of, I think, the power of self-inquiry. Now, the reason I think it's helpful to have one-pointedness, right? people disagree about this point, but I think one-pointedness actually is quite helpful because it can allow us to more readily stay as awareness. We've done some prior training so that we, even though that was about attention to an object, and resting, resting on the breath. Still, there was the, there was the uh, training to rest on something. Now we can try to rest, not try. Now we can rest on no thing. It's, it's a sta stabilizing of an otherwise chaotic, dispersive mind. And now the mind can step back. So Zen Master Dogen says, take the backward step and turn the light within. And that's the direct pointing that I'm most familiar with. Thus, I spoke most about it. Um, so, yeah. so far we have yeah. um, recognizing some scars. Mm -hmm. We have one pointedness, such mm -hmm. as paying attention to the left nostril. Mm -hmm. And then we just described uh, the direct approach. Is that what you call it? So direct pointing? Direct pointing, yeah. And and the fourth one is heart opening. Yeah. So these get us into uh, all, all sorts. But basically, the the let's begin by describing the heart as if it were the, as if it were some kind of physical something or other. That's that's not quite accurate, but it's the best we can best we can do. And our uh, at this point in most of our lives, I suspect most of us can tune into the fact, it takes a while to understand, but tune into the fact that our hearts are closed, mm -hmm. mostly closed. Uh, it's been a fairly intellectual conversation today, but if you just don't sense into that for a moment, uh, you'll feel that there's a certain ache when there's a, there's a beautiful ache when the heart opens and there's a Ter terrible ache when the heart is closed when you had this cruel thought about someone or you discounted someone now i'm using thoughts to try to articulate um, this closed heart but the closed heart is the is, is the prior condition for the rising of those thoughts and emotions to begin with so the heart i think of being a bit like this um, unitive uh, intuitive faculty hmm. and usually we you know usually we place the heart and this is quite accurate but it's a good starting point usually place it about uh two finger lengths to the right opposite the, the physical hmm. the actual physical heart um, because it can feel as if that's what's opening during certain meditations it feels like it can come from there and go outwards so these meditations are very different. Uh, the ones to start with that might seem a little bit less um, 
Wu to some, perhaps it would be metta in, in Buddhism. So that would be a loving kindness meditation. Uh, I'll describe it briefly so that we have a few other so there are kinds of, of um, heart opening meditations. Um, so you basically start with your relative self and you and uh, you might do a, a four yearnings in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, may I, oh, it is, oh, may I be free from enmity, hatred, ill will, etc. May I be free from affliction. May I be free from anxiety. May I be happy and well. And I want to really feel that. And then you're going to keep, it's said that we want to now go to our dear ones and loved ones and we go to our, our friends. We're going to keep going outward till we go family members. You keep moving from that natural loving sensitivity until you get to the point of your enemy, your rival. And that's mm-hmm. the stick. That's the really sticky one. Um, now, some people might think, given that maybe your friends are all Canadian, they might think, oh, I don't have any enemies. Oh, right. oh you know, it's the bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, we all have them. I mean, it, you don't call them my enemy. But you have ill, you feel ill will, you feel aversion, you you think ill of them, you wonder why they're promoted. It doesn't really matter, right? Um, so there certainly are people in our repertoire of people we know, and if we, we we if we really tune in, we'll find that we really don't like this person, mm-hmm. right? and perhaps with good reason. But that has to do with a certain set of traits or characteristics. Um, what Buddhism is trying to show us that there's Buddha nature. Just Christianity is trying to show us that we're well, traditional Christianity wants to show us that we're made in the image and likeness of God, and thus are God's children. And so hate the sin, love the sinner. Buddhism wants to say you are Buddha nature, and these are just peripheral traits, dispositions, karmic heritage. So I find that to be a very similar distinction mm-hmm. um, in, in actual practice. So you want to be able to actually get to a point where you can open your heart to the enemy. And the last one is opening your heart to all beings. And there are various ways of doing so. That's one. Um, there, there are different kinds. I'll give you one other one so that we don't go through the whole panoply. Uh, Ramdas has one, which is very simple. I'll just say some of these are light oriented, so you can have energy and light come in, comes into your heart, and have certain qualities that come in, and then maybe there's a removal of certain unwholesome qualities and the bringing in of certain wholesome qualities. But he has one in which he says, just as on the out breath, I'm loving awareness. And mm-hmm. he, Rest in the heart space. I'm loving awareness. I've done that one. I think it's quite good. Um, so, if someone were to ask, "What's the what's the point of what's the point of this one?" It um, provides something that I think is missing in Zen. In my experience, Zen is very quieting. If you look at Zen practitioners, they're very she guse gon you know, as a feeling of product. We were doing that earlier, but <laughs> it's it's um, ritualistic. It um, looks very disciplined from the outside. It's very quiet, dark. Symbol mm-hmm. is the moon, right? The symbol is more the moon. Um, there's a certain energy I think associated with it. I think it's created a number of things, but I'm I think there needs to be some some bhakti elements, some kirtan elements. So as to balance out the yin and the yang, right? mm-hmm. there needs to be some uh, celebratory, outflowing, uh, spontaneous acts of love, mm-hmm. and the heart-opening ones really, really do that. They provide that. Mm-hmm. 
being very quiet is is, is great, but uh, I'll, I'll give you, um, I feel so better on that abstract today. So here's a very concrete example. So uh, I have a wife and uh, a wife and a dog, a puppy, and we're on these these. Uh, the question I ask myself when we're on a, a retreat, in particular at home, a home retreat, is how am I going to balance the quieting of the mind through these various, most most especially through direct pointing? How am I going to balance? That's going to be really quiet and soft, and the, the inquiry comes to be so rich. I'm walking around. Who am I? Going to the bathroom. Who am I? To make wash dishes. Who am I? Meanwhile, there are two sentient beings. Uh, who, who, who love me and who I love and something is asked of me in certain cases, mm. right? So at the end of a meditation in Zen, you would just bow, but I come over and snuggle my wife and duck, right? Right. That's not really Zen. <laughs> right, right. Crawling across the floor and lying on your side and, 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 and petting a 14 and a half pound dog and, you know, lie with my, my wife is not, but it's heart opening. I think of it as a, just a very simple, natural, groping exercise. Um, so hopefully it gives some um, texture to yeah. the differences. Just to add um, my own personal experience here, something that works quite reliably for me to open the heart, and maybe people can try this if they don't really know what that, that feeling is of heart opening. It's if I take somebody who's... Um, important to me, let's say a family member who, for whatever reason in this moment, I have some kind of irritation with or our last interaction wasn't that great or something. And if in that context, I do a brief, um, I guess like visualization or contemplation about uh, the fact that one day they will die or one day I will die. Um, and I can sometimes get uh, imaginative about this. Like what if I got a phone call or something or, you know, what if heard about a car accident, like something like that, just making it kind of real for me. Mm -hmm. um, very quickly, there's like this uh, softening in the front of my body. Right. Um, and it's quite reliable, even, even if I'm in an argument. And if I remember to do that and to really think about how there will one day be the last time I talk to this person, mm -hmm. that, um, that makes my heart just open. And I don't know what else to call that feeling, um, no, that's right. But yeah, heart—that's that's what heart openness often means to me. Yeah, and um, a couple, um, a couple of couple of things. Oh, uh, I experience it. I experience it as a kind of ache. That's why I used the word earlier—a poignancy. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I don't want to go too off the rails here. I don't actually think that's, in my nomenclature, it's not really an emotion. Because I tend to think of emotions as temporary states, of things that come and go. This is actually access to the fundamental nature of reality. When Christians say God is love, I think that's literally true. Hmm. Right, right. In fact, I don't just think it. I've had some tastes that seem to give me um, sufficient body of evidence to suggest it's true. Um, so there's a so that ache or poignancy is this. It's stronger than the word connecting, but it is a it is almost like a yearning, mm -hmm. right? a longing, uh, and a a, a a movement toward 
you know, thy, my cup runneth over. There's a feeling of this overwhelmingness in a positive sense here. Mm -hmm. right? um, you know, and we already experience it. We, you know, we are experience it in terms of crying or laughing or something like that. That could happen, but it could just be this tug. Um, yeah, and you're right. It's a, it's a softening. Um, and the, 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 but what's nice about the non-dual teaching is it has a way of, of providing uh, substantiation for why this would be so. Well, I'll, I'll quote Rupert Spire. Uh, he's got a very nice short poem. He says, in separation, oh, hold on. Yes. In separation, I am somebody. In union, no, he says, in separation, I am no one. In union, I am. Try that again. This is, this is a recording, right? <laughs> Just kidding. In separation, I, I am someone. In union, I am no one or nothing. In love, I'm everything. Oh, I'm, I, I blew it again. Let me try it once more. This is good. In separation, uh, I am something. He's, he's very schematic, so I want to make sure I get his schematism. Right? In, in separation, I am something. In, in union, I am nothing, no thing. And love, I am everything. So there we got it. Have fun. Um, so that's that. The that is the, the heart openness is the uh, smallest possible taste, the mouche bouche of the love that we are. Mm. Right? And it's 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 intimating at the at the unicity of all, the wholeness of all. Right? When you're when you're angry at your mother you have to presume that she's a separate entity that's mm -hmm. um, saying something that's infringing upon you and you're angry because you're a separate entity, but when the heart opens. It's the loss of that finite being, but it's cluing you into the substratum that's holding, holding all, holding all of us up. That's why it's, there's a kind of, that's rather somber or melancholic beauty mm -hmm. about heart openness. It's like, oh, this one's going to go. Buddhism, right? Buddhism 101, Anicca, impermanence. This one's going to go, but there's also the sweetness. It's really strange, right? The yeah. sweetness of it all being held in the pelvic floor of reality, even as this one or that one comes and goes. So that's why the heart openness is, I mean, this is also some dumb theoretical sounding but the the actual experience experience of oh well, here, here we are right here we are this moment right right here right here and this moment has such texture this experience right now has such richness such such profound such profound it's so profound it's precious. It's precious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. do, do you think, um, okay, if, if suffering, if all suffering is due to separation, mm -hmm. do you think that what everybody is ultimately trying to do here with all their goals, you know, to get somewhere in their career, to get, some level of physical fitness to make money, to get better at a musical instrument, etc. Mm -hmm. 
do you think those are all basically uh, misguided pathways to experiencing love? Yeah, there are two. There are two really nice ways of of, of replying to that question. But first, to be to be clear about the the, the cause of suffering. Um, I might have been a little bit clear. It's not due to separation per se. There are going to be, there's going to be the many. It's due to the identification with the separate entity. And that's mm-hmm. what's called ignorance. So as um, Francis Asile says, um, suffering is born of the belief and feeling that I am a limited separate consciousness. So oh, I hope that, hope that helps. So uh, back to the question. So there are two ways of talking about whether it's misguided. Um, one is to say in a form of neti neti, not this, not this. Dude, you're, you're going for uh, the job. That's not it. Mm-hmm. You, you, no, okay, so we can do a, little, a simple philosophical inquiry. What is it that you want? Well, I want this job. Why do you want the job? Because it's couched in this career. Why do you want this career? Um, because the career is going to bring me fulfillment, I guess, or meaning. Here's some, one of those value-laden words there. Um, if you can investigate that further through various ways, you'd come to see that no, no career can actually do that. It's completely impossible. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a misplaced demand. So evidently that career is not it. And usually what you see is lateral movement such that the person goes to the next career or the next job or whatever else. And you start to see that. But after all those things have been negated, not this, not this, then people keep sliding. Oh, it's this relationship. I'm going to fixate on that. It's this particular person I love. It's this one and this one I know. Right? If you can investigate that, you realize, oh, no, that's actually, this is not it. She could die or he could die. Um, he or she could cheat on me, hypothetically speaking. Right? This, is imper- this too is impermanent. So two, two parts of three marks of existence in Buddhism. One is uh, anicca, impermanence. The other one is dukkha or suffering, disease, disturbance. Wait, that's not it either. So you're getting the inquiry going. This is the netty netty. This is a deconstructive approach. Right? And you can, so I've done this a number of times with people. And you see to a point at which it's not status, it's not a, a certain level of wealth. It's essentially most of the secular goods that are being offered and advocated for turn out not to be it, mm-hmm. or it is going to be what I truly seek. Right? What it, what it is that will answer my heart's yearning with this deep eternal rest or peace. So that's one way of going about it. Uh, the other way um, we find in Kashmir Shaivism or non-dual, non-dual Shaiva Tantra, that's what it's called, it's called is, is really elegant. Um, you and I have done this before. It's to say that y- you want um, sense pleasure, right? So you, what is it that you, what is, what is happiness? It's sense pleasure. You invite the person, maybe I shouldn't use this one, that sounds, I'm, 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 I'm misunderstanding. Tantra or tantra really is not concerned with, with um, sexual gymnastics. Right. So maybe I'll use, I'll use a different example. Um, <laughs> so that, <laughs> uh, let's take one from academia. You think that happiness is tantamount to um, intellectual knowledge. Uh, if you can get someone to, to go deeply into it, so not to critique the misguidedness of it, but to go deeply into it, it will blossom open into the, the all. 
-hmm. maybe a better, better example. Let me try one other example. Let's take, um, let's take sadness. So you have a somatic meditation, you go into the nature of sadness. The sadness is in the, in the belly somewhere. Okay, you can ask the question, kind of guidance and say, well, what is that sadness really longing for? It's longing for, make a number of a connection, togetherness, let's say. Okay, well, what it, you can start to see that what it's really longing for is togetherness, but of the kind that is completely ineradicable, ungainsayable, complete, whole, perfect. Yeah. So even in our deepest, so this be very hard, people who are in deep sorrow, but even in our deepest sorrows, even in our fears, even in our angers, if we were to dilate into it, there ends up being an expansion of the anger, let's say, into love. Or care, expands into care, anger. Some have said anger means I care a lot. Presupposition mm -hmm. anger is I care a lot. You expand into the care, you go through care, you get into perhaps compassion. And you, I might say deep in compassion, so I have Christian, uh, Christian background, you come to love. Uh, both of those are, are completely acceptable. It's going to depend on the person, whichever one you use. If someone is really quite hubristic, then you might engage that person in the constructive approach right. Right, to clip the wings. If the person tends to be a little more um, sensitive and you really don't want to push too hard and say, well, this is wonderful. You have a longing for happiness. This is great. And you're ha you identify the happiness with this object. Can we somatically inquire to a, to a point at which it becomes clear that, no, this is not, this is just a contingent happiness. I can give you one example from my wife's life. Um, she kept bringing this example up um, in years past when we first met, 2012, she would say, there's a time I was in Kirkwood, California. This, and uh, we happened, we were, my friend and I were lying on this rock and the sun was just so, and she would return to that example over and over again, as if um, 10 years ago, as if it was an attribution error, I call it. No, it's Kirkwood, right? What it, happiness is Kirkwood. Hmm. Whereas from a mystical or nondo point of view, there's just been a, a slight disclosure. No, the, 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 the genuine peace, love or happiness that is our very, source that is our wellspring is everywhere and nowhere in particular and it's also in kirkwood right right <laughs> it happens to be like a, like a lotus flower blossoming out of the mud right here and it's, it's it's revealing itself so what i find many people do is they'll say oh no it's climbing climbing is where clear it is it's i call it attribution error you attribute right. it to the object and then you attach to the object rather than realizing that the, the activity or object or whatever it was is just disclosing the essential nature of love itself. Last question for you. Okay. Um, and feel free to take your time in responding to this, but uh, what would you say is of utmost importance? That's a loaded question. You don't have an answer to that question. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, well, I, I honestly think there are three answers. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think you knew that already. Uh, this is what I, three I think are are, are, are really hard. They're, they feel very unimpeachable to me. And I could try to 
uh, take the other two and reply and have a reduction base. But I, I, I don't really feel inclined to do that. So, mm. um, so what I do think is the uh, is waking up. It's, a, it's an Eastern path of realizing her true nature or realizing her face. I think I can articulate that one very easily by saying there's a certain question that I mean, almost all of us have once we become self-reflective enough. The question we have is, why do I suffer? You ask the question essentially. Mm-hmm. And what will be the end of the suffering? That's what, the, that's what these Eastern paths are specifically designed to tackle. That's what's amazing about them. <laughs> they actually take extraordinarily seriously this obvious experience that we have. And the obvious experience we have too is that there's a lot of suffering. Uh, if we're being really honest with ourselves, that's the part that's really difficult. If we're being really honest with ourselves, then we have a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. It can take a while for someone to see that if someone is uh, privileged or comes from a certain background and has had good fortune, it's really hard to even show that person, no, no, you're also suffering. Uh, one translation of dukkha I just came upon um, a few days ago is disturbance. Mm-hmm. So dukkha meaning dis-ease, dissatisfactoriness, offness, things being a little awry, Disturbance is a good one too. Things are kind of disturbed. They're not just so. I wish they were so. They're not. And that that's that's feels like a locomotive force when I think about the Eastern path. And so what is awakening? But it, it changes along the way. It, it, it starts with, oh man, I'm suffering. It hurts. And along the way, the Bodhisattva vow becomes very natural, which is, oh, I want to end suffering for all beings. Mm. We haven't really talked about that, but if there is really no ontologically distinct subject called Andrew, then the realization that Andrew, quote unquote, has is the realization all of us have. It, right, it, that's one way of thinking about the Bodhisattva vow. The reason, it's, it's ethical, right, in the sense that I, I, I want all to be liberated, all sentient beings. But it's also ontological or metaphysical. If there is no self here, then that full realization is the realization of the entire cosmos. It has to be, right? That follows logically. In any case, so that that brings us to what I think all of us desire. So the Dalai Lama says quite nicely, very beautifully, very clearly, everyone wants happiness, no one wants to suffer. So that's that's a perfect framing. And we just don't know what happiness is. We don't know that that we are suffering. We don't know how much we're suffering. We don't have a path. Many of us don't have a path. We try a lot of the wrong things. So that's a really quite, um, it's probably part of the path too, but it's a really painful part is to see all the different things that we try that can't possibly satisfy. Um, A rule of thumb I give conversation partners is the following. If whatever approach you take doesn't at least bring about significant progress, then that that approach should be jettisoned. Mm. The stronger litmus test is if that pro- approach you take does not promise the end of all of your suffering, then at some point it should be jettisoned. At some point, maybe it has some functional value in the short term. But that, that really should be our litmus test. Seems like you have a comment before I jump in the other two. No. Okay. No, okay. Clear. Okay. Well, so this, I feel as the, so sometimes in the Eastern traditions, they talk about wisdom, but I, I do feel that that's a great heritage. The second path. Second thing of ultimate importance, I think, is wisdom. 
And um, when, I, when I hear it used um, among Buddhists, let's say, it's, it's insight or seeing nature clearly. But I don't, and that's perfectly reasonable, and I, I, I'm all for that. I just wouldn't call that wisdom. I think the Greeks are better. Basically, I would say that wisdom is, there are different ways of talking about it, but it brings together metaphysics and ethics. So it, it brings together knowing how to live and living that life consciously based on the proper view of reality, based on a right view, based on what, what, re, what is reality fundamentally. But knowing what reality is fundamentally, enlightenment, doesn't necessarily, in my book, entail wisdom, which mm-hmm. is your, con- your conduct. So this is another way of answering the question you asked before about how all those teachers could have done those things. But, but mm-hmm. well, they, some of them could be realized to some degree or another, but not wise. Because wisdom is going to require, I think, a lifelong cultivation, various ethical practices and reflective practices to the point at which one um, is able to have one's conduct flowering, flourishing with the deepest understanding. It will be provisional, need to be revised over time, but basically the wise one is able to say, without having to say it, in this context, compassion, may it flow forth. And this, in this context over here, courage, may that flow forth. It's, it's more than an air traffic uh, controller pointing to which virtue needs to be exercised. It's much more than that, but certainly it does that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is basically what the Greeks were giving us. It's a wonderful gift. How do you lead a wise life? I should say so. If this, so, I should say if, if the first path is concerned with suffering, we suffer. I think the second path is answering the question many of us have had at some point in second modernity. It's something like, well, I don't know how to live. I don't know what I'm doing here. Something like that would be the way I put it. Mm. I don't know if I would agree with your friend John Ravakey in saying it's the answer to the meaning crisis. I'm not sure that I would quite. Put it that way it's more like an answer to the cluelessness crisis <laughs> like we, right. don't know, we don't know what we're doing here right and wisdom locks it in you know locks the answer into place mm. says oh no i do know what i'm doing here right i know what my conduct is on behalf of it you know, the metaphor of locking the place at least did it for me it kind of, mm-hmm. it's like a form of concentration at one point it kind of locks it all into its proper location or spot um, and the third path we've already hinted at is the path of love that comes out of Christianity, um, I think. And there is something that's we're responding to in, in modernity. We haven't really gotten to you know, the modern world today. Um, but I think modernity is very cold, as Theodore Adorno once said in his book, Negative Dialectics. It's a very cold place. Mm. I was once talking with an academic and I said, the university is a, quote, unloving institution. It's, you know, it's beautiful in certain ways. I'm not trying to throw it beneath the bus, but it's unloving. Yeah, now they would well say, well, well, they would say, well, it's a research program. Of course it is. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the <laughs> yes, but <laughs> we need love, uh, right? Where are we going to learn love? We're not learning love in the bourgeois home very mm-hmm. readily. We're certainly not learning to extend love to all beings. So I, I think the gospel message is the one that I think is quite beautiful. Love God and love thy neighbor as thyself love God and love thy neighbor as the oneself that is. Um, so it moves from the sense, you know, when I was, when I was uh, after I finished my 
So to be clear, after I finished my PhD, so I grew up in a Protestant home. Um, and it's a, I, I describe it as very stiff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, yes, not very affectionate, but there's a kind of stiffness, a stiff distancing. Uh, I'm not saying they were kind and considerate, but uh, arm's length in a way. Mm-hmm. And then I then I finished a PhD. And boy, was that a miseducation and stiffness right. and intellectuality. And so I feel as though by the end of my 20s, my heart was very closed, not to mention all my forms of uh, my vices, arrogance and such. So it's very real and natural to begin the journey home by opening our heart during a time when things feel so cold and austere and distant. And I'm not persuaded that the word connection, people talk about connection today. I want something a little bit more ambitious. I want something a little bit stronger than connection. Connections to um, cybernetic theory-esque, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. right? We have little nodes and we're gonna draw a line between these two. I, I want love, right? <laughs> Computers are connected. Yeah, they are connected. All sorts of things are connected. Dots are connected. So in answer to the the conundrum, how did my heart get so closed? Love, the heart openness, meditations open them. So to the the question of suffering, we have awakening. We have genuine peacefulness, true serviceableness. Uh, Wide, wide awakeness, receptivity to all that is, to the question of cluelessness and a kind of helplessness, waywardness today, right? Even nihilism, if you want to put it that way, but I want to get into the green crisis. But this, 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 this ennui, this waywardness we have oh, to lead a wise life. And to the question of how did I get so crusty, <laughs> right? <laughs> we have heart openness to the point at which love is what's flowing forth doesn't mean that everyone is you know, everyone who mistreats you is this is the, i want to be clear at the end of our, our conversation today that i don't mean sentimentality um, i don't mean that we're affectionate we're, we're gushing with affection for everyone but i do mean that we can we can we know that which binds all sentient beings together and we act from that deep place that's the that's the wellspring of love thank you very much for this conversation today andrew you're very welcome thank you very much for this conversation today Daniel.